Chapter Twenty Three of Great Men and Famous Women, Volume Four, edited by Charles F. Horn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Abraham Lincoln, eighteen o nine to eighteen sixty five, by Terence Vincent Powderly. Born in obscurity and poverty, with health and a good disposition as a heritage from nature, and with Christian parents as teachers and guides, Abraham Lincoln. Sixteenth President of the United States, entered upon life's journey through toil and vicissitude to fame and immortality. Abraham Lincoln, grandfather of the President, was born in Union, Pennsylvania, and in 1759 removed with his parents to a point near Harrisonburg, Virginia. John Hanks and Squire Boone, father of Daniel Boone, were neighbors of the Lincolns at Union. The former took up his residence at Harrisonburg, Virginia, and Squire Boone removed to Holman's Ford on the Yadkin River in North Carolina. When he was twenty-one years old, Abraham Lincoln went to North Carolina to visit his old neighbors, the Boones, and while there met and married Mary Shipley. He built a log cabin on the banks of the Yadkin and lived there several years. Here it was that Thomas Lincoln, father of the president, was born. Shortly after his birth, his parents, in 1778, removed to Kentucky and settled near Elizabethtown in Hardin County. In 1784, when Thomas was but six years old, his father was killed by the Indians, and there were no schools in the neighborhood, and Thomas Lincoln grew to manhood without receiving an education. Joseph Hanks, son of John Hanks, removed to Kentucky, at about the time that Abraham Lincoln moved there from North Carolina. His daughter, Nancy Hanks, who was born and educated in Virginia, grew up a playmate of Thomas Lincoln, and in 1806 became his wife. Thomas Lincoln selected a farm near Hodgensville, now the county seat of LaRue County, Kentucky, built a log cabin containing but one room, in which, on February 12, 1809, Abraham Lincoln, the future president, was born. A poor farmer, with no education and no capital other than his labor, Thomas Lincoln found little to encourage his stay in Kentucky. The institution of slavery, which lived on the toil of the black man, threw a dark shadow across the path of the poor white, who could claim no title to property in human flesh and sinew, and in 1817 he removed from Kentucky to Spencer County, Indiana, and settled in the forest of Pigeon Creek near the town of Gentryville. On October 5, 1818, Mrs. Lincoln died and was laid to rest at the foot of a tree on the farm which her husband had hewed out of the forest with his axe. Eighteen months after the death of his wife, Mr. Lincoln married Mrs. Sarah Bush Johnston, a widow who had been a neighbor of his in Kentucky. To his stepmother, Abraham became very much attached, and he always entertained the greatest respect and affection for her. His education was very simple, his school days few, and his books fewer still. Before leaving Kentucky, he learned to read while listening to his mother as she gave lessons to his father. In 1814, a Catholic priest, Zachariah Riney, who traveled through the country, opened a school in an untenanted cabin at Hodgensville, and for a few weeks gave instructions to the youth of the neighborhood. Abraham attended this school during its brief existence. In 1822, Hazel Dorsey was employed as a teacher at Pigeon Creek, Indiana, and during his short stay, Abraham Lincoln was his most attentive pupil. 
Two years after, Abraham went to school for several months, and in 1824 his school days came to an end. His time at school did not exceed twelve months altogether. In the meantime, he had read Defoe's Robinson Crusoe, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Aesop's Fables, the Bible, and Weems' Life of Washington. In 1824, his father, in need of his assistance as a breadwinner, began to instruct him in the carpenter trade. In 1825, he was employed at $6 a month to manage a ferry across the Ohio River at Gentry's Landing, near the mouth of Anderson Creek. His wages were paid to his father. The first money he earned for himself came in the shape of two half-dollars, paid to him by two gentlemen whose trunks he transferred from the shore to a passing steamer. In 1828, Mr. Gentry engaged him to go to New Orleans on a flatboat with a load of produce. In 1830, John Hanks, who had removed from Kentucky to Illinois, wrote to Thomas Lincoln, urging him to move to that state. Acting on the advice, Mr. Lincoln removed to Illinois and settled at a point some ten miles west of Decatur. Abraham Lincoln drove the ox team which hauled the household effects of the family, and, wearing a coonskin cap, jean jacket, and a pair of buckskin trousers, he entered the state poor friendless, and unknown. Thirty years later, he left Illinois, the foremost man in the nation, and known to all the world. He assisted his father in clearing fifteen acres of land, and split the rails with which to build the fence. Although of age, he had no money, and having but a scant supply of clothing, made a bargain with Nancy Miller to make him a pair of trousers. And as he was over six feet in height, it took fourteen hundred rails to pay for his trousers. On April 19, 1831, he went to New Orleans with a flatboat load of pigs, corn, pork, and beef. The pigs refusing to walk, Lincoln carried them aboard in his arms. John Hanks and Lincoln's half-brother John Johnston accompanied him on the trip. While in New Orleans, he first saw men and women sold as slaves. And as every instinct of his nature revolted at the spectacle, he said to John Hanks, if I ever get a chance to hit that institution, I'll hit it hard. Returning from New Orleans, he went to New Salem to clerk in the store of Denton Offutt. While waiting for a shipment of goods, he acted as a clerk on a local election board, and thus filled his first political position. During his stay in New Salem, he was frequently called on to exercise his great strength in quelling disturbances and inspired the turbulent elements of the place with a wholesome respect for his powers of muscular persuasion. He was not quarrelsome, never engaged in contention, but never hesitated to take his own part or that of another who might need a helping hand. He subscribed for the Louisville Journal and generously read its contents aloud to those who gathered in the store. During the Black Hawk War, he enlisted as private in a company which raised in the neighborhood and was at once elected captain. In a short time, the company was mustered out, and he re-enlisted in the Independent Spy Battalion, which continued in service until the end of the war. On returning to New Salem, he announced himself an independent candidate for the legislature, and at a meeting held during the canvass, made his first political speech in these words. Fellow citizens, I presume you know who I am. I am humble Abraham Lincoln. I have been solicited by many friends to become a candidate for the legislature, 
my politics can be briefly stated i am in favor of the internal improvement system and a high protective tariff these are my sentiments and political principles if elected i shall be thankful if not it will be all the same in the winter of eighteen thirty two he became a partner of a man named berry in the purchase and management of a store they had no money but gave their notes berry became dissipated lost interest in the business and the firm failed in eighteen thirty three president jackson appointed lincoln postmaster of new salem he remained postmaster until eighteen thirty six while holding the office lincoln voluntarily established the free delivery system in new salem by carrying the letters around in his hat he began the study of law and was soon after appointed deputy surveyor the note he gave on going into partnership with berry had been sold to a man who wanted his money and in the fall of eighteen thirty four the sheriff levied on and sold his instruments to satisfy the debt in that year he was elected to the legislature and borrowed the money with which to purchase a suit of clothes to go to the state capitol at vandalia he was re-elected to the legislature in eighteen thirty six and during the canvass declared his principles as follows i go for all sharing the privileges of the government who assist in bearing its burdens consequently i go for admitting all whites to the right of suffrage who pay taxes and bear arms by no means excluding females a few years later when questioned concerning that utterance he said all questions of social and moral reform find lodgment first with enlightened souls who stamp them with their approval in god's own time they will be organized into law and thus woven into the fabric of our institutions in eighteen thirty six he met stephen a douglas for the first time at the state capitol in eighteen thirty seven he was admitted to the bar in eighteen thirty eight re-elected to the legislature and again in eighteen forty the capital had been removed from vandalia to springfield and in partnership with john t stewart he began the practice of law in that city in eighteen thirty nine on november fourth eighteen forty two he was married to mary todd daughter of hon robert s todd in the presidential campaigns of eighteen forty and eighteen forty four he canvassed the state as a presidential elector on the whig ticket and in both campaigns was pitted in joint debate against stephen a douglas in eighteen forty six he was elected to the thirtieth congress and was the only whig representative in that body from illinois on january twelfth eighteen forty eight he made his first speech in congress on a resolution which he offered calling on the president to provide a statement relating to the war with mexico on january sixteenth eighteen forty nine he introduced a bill to abolish slavery in the district of columbia and to compensate the owners of the liberated slaves he declined a re-election to congress and in eighteen forty nine was an unsuccessful candidate for united states senator in eighteen fifty he refused to accept the appointment as governor of oregon tendered him by president fillmore for a few years he gave no attention to political matters but the introduction in congress of the bill to admit nebraska and kansas to the union and the agitation for the repeal of the missouri compromise aroused his interest and in short time he became the leader of a new party in the state 
all who opposed the repeal of that compromise of whatever party were known as anti-nebraska in the beginning but gradually they began to call themselves republicans and as such they carried most of the free state elections of eighteen fifty four senator douglas in defending his course on the nebraska bill made speeches through illinois on october first eighteen fifty four lincoln in reply to one of these speeches in speaking of slavery said i hate it because it deprives our republican example of its just influence in the world it enables the enemies of free institutions to taunt us as hypocrites causes the real friends of freedom to doubt our sincerity is at war with the vital principles of civic liberty contrary to the declaration of independence and maintains that there is no right principle of action but self-interest no man is good enough to govern another man without the other's consent i object to the nebraska bill because it assures there can be moral right in the enslaving of one man by another he was a candidate for a united states senator in eighteen fifty five but his withdrawal from the contest gave the election to mr trumbull in eighteen fifty six he received one hundred and ten votes for vice-president at the first republican national convention and canvassed that state as one of the presidential electors during this canvass he said sometimes when i am speaking i feel that the time is soon coming when the sun shall shine and the rain fall on no man who shall go forth to unrequited toil how it will come about when it will come about i cannot tell but that time will surely come the supreme court of the united states on march sixth eighteen fifty seven committed itself to the perpetuation of slavery in the dred scott decision and that act together with the question of admitting kansas to the union as a slave or free state furnished the argument for the legislative campaign of eighteen fifty eight in which lincoln was a candidate for united states senator against stephen a douglas in his speech accepting the nomination he in referring to the agitation for the abolition of slavery said in my opinion it will not cease until a crisis shall have been reached and passed a house divided against itself cannot stand i believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free i do not expect the union to be dissolved i do not expect the house to fall but i do expect it will cease to be divided on may sixteenth eighteen sixty the second republican national convention met in chicago and on the third ballot nominated lincoln for the presidency over william h seward who was at that time the idol of the radical element of the party not many who listened to the clergyman who delivered the prayer at the opening of the convention gave serious thought to these prophetic words as they fell from his lips we entreat thee at some future but no distant day the evil which now invests the body politic shall not only have been arrested in its progress but wholly eradicated from the system the northern democrats nominated stephen a douglas the slaveholding southern democrats nominated john c breckinridge and a constitutional union party nominated john bell the electoral college gave lincoln one hundred and eighty votes breckeridge seventy two bell thirty nine and douglas twelve 
in his inaugural address lincoln said i have no purpose directly or indirectly to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it exists i believe i have no lawful right to do so and have no inclination to do so although his inaugural breathed peace and conciliation in every line it had no effect on the hot-headed advocates of secession the war began with the bombardment of fort sumter on april twelfth eighteen sixty one and ended with his death on april fifteenth he issued his first call for troops and during his administration the total number called for was two million seven hundred and fifty nine thousand forty nine with the exception of russia the foreign powers exhibited evidences of hostility to the union and when urged to retaliation lincoln said one war at a time if you please gentlemen on may twentieth eighteen sixty two he signed the homestead law a boon of inestimable value to settlers on land on january first eighteen sixty three he issued the emancipation proclamation which stamped the seal of eternal truth on the declaration of independence on november nineteenth eighteen sixty three at the dedication of the gettysburg cemetery he in concluding a speech which should be committed to memory by every citizen of the nation said it is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us that we here highly resolve that the dead shall not have died in vain that the nation shall under god have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people by the people and for the people shall not perish from the earth on june eighth eighteen sixty four he was renominated by the republican national convention general mcclellan was nominated by the democrats and at the election lincoln received two hundred and twelve of the two hundred and thirty three electoral votes cast in concluding his inaugural address march fourth eighteen sixty five he said both read the same bible and pray to the same god and each invokes his aid against the other it may seem strange that any man should dare to ask god's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces but let us judge not that we be not judged fondly do we hope fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away yet if god wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsmen's two hundred and fifty years of unrequited toil shall be sunk and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword as was said three thousand years ago so still it must be said that the judgments of the lord are true and righteous altogether with malice towards none with charity for all with firmness in the right as god gives us to see the right let us finish the work we are in to bind up the nation's wounds to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphans to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and a lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations on the evening of april fourteenth eighteen sixty five while seated in a box at ford's theatre witnessing the play our american cousin he was shot by an actor j wilkes booth and at twenty-two minutes past seven on the morning of the fifteenth his life ended his body was embalmed and taken in a funeral possession from washington through baltimore 
Harrisburg, Philadelphia, New York, Albany, Buffalo, Cleveland, and Chicago to Springfield, and was buried on May 4th at Oak Ridge Cemetery. On October 15th, 1874, his remains were taken up and placed in a tomb beneath a magnificent and elegantly designed monument, consisting of a statue of the martyred president and an obelisk of imposing appearance. No pen can do justice to the character of Lincoln, for the world will never know of the trials, embarrassments, and misgivings which beset him from his infancy in the backwoods to his tomb in Springfield. During his administration he never knew a moment free from anxiety. Each day he faced a new problem, and finding no precedent to guide him in its solution, he acted in accordance with his own good common sense, and proved equal to every emergency. Frequently misunderstood by the nation and her foremost men, he removed all doubts by the touch of the statesman when the time was ripe. To fully estimate the statesman, we must know the man, and as years go by, the full nobility of his private character will be disclosed to the world in all its simple grandeur. He was a spirit of the greatest size and divinest metal, which no temptation could allure from the course of right. His administration was the most trying that could fall to the lot of man. No other furnished so many opportunities to amass wealth through speculation and intrigue, but greed and avarice were strangers to his nature, and no stain rests upon his memory. He was slow to arrive at conclusions, but when deliberation gave birth to conviction, he unfalteringly strove for the right. His education was practical, not theoretical, and was acquired in the school of nature and among men rather than among books. The basis of his life was earnestness. No rhetorical display marked his speech, but his oratory fastened the attention, appealed to reason, and carried conviction to the hearts of his listeners. He valued public opinion, for he said, With public sentiment, nothing can fail. Without public sentiment, nothing can succeed. Consequently, he who molds public sentiment goes deeper than he who enacts statutes or pronounces decisions. He opposed the extension of slavery rather than its abolition. But as he divined the real sentiments of its advocates, he realized that enduring peace would not bless the nation while the institution lived, a menace to free labor and industrial prosperity. He professed no religion, for his great heart throbbed in sympathy with all humanity. And he would not be separated from even the humblest among men by the artificial barriers of creed. He believed in the gospel of liberty and would guarantee it to all men through constitutional enactment. When he became president, he found slavery entrenched behind the bulwarks of constitutional law and judicial decision. He found a united South, resolute in her determination to perpetuate slavery in the nation, a vacillating North, divided on the sentiment on the great question of property in man. He found the nation in the throes of civil war and died in the triumphal hour of his country's deliverance with a scepter of slavery shattered, her fetters broken and in rust, 
and her power crumbled to ashes. Public criticism never annoyed him, and he was not averse to taking counsel from the poorest among men. It was love of country, not selfish ambition, which turned his attention to public life. And toward the end of his administration, he was rewarded by public confidence and respect for his honesty and singleness of aim toward the good of the nation. He had a great relish for storytelling and used his fund of anecdote to good advantage in illustrating points in conversation. His administration stands the guidepost of the centuries, set by the eternal as a dividing line between the serfdom of the past and the freedom of the future. His monument stands the altar of a nation's fame, and his name will live to guide the world to enfranchisement. End of chapter 23